Monday, the 25th of November, 1963. Three men are laid to rest in America. Three men who didn't know each other, who had never met each other, but whose fates were tragically intertwined. The Policeman J.D. Tippett was laid to rest in Dallas, Texas, with his grieving wife and three young children in attendance. His funeral procession was given a guard of honour by hundreds of Dallas policemen. On Friday, the 22nd of November, Officer Tippett had stepped out of his patrol car and been shot at point-blank range by an assailant, who had then ducked into a cinema to hide. J.D. Tippett was 39 years old when he died. The Assassin Lee Harvey Oswald was buried in Fort Worth, not far from Dallas. In attendance was his wife, their two young children, his mother, his brother, and several armed FBI agents. On Friday, the 22nd of November, Oswald had left his place of work at the Texas School Book Depository and within an hour had shot Officer J.D. Tippett as he stepped out of his car. Arrested in a cinema, Oswald was taken into custody but was himself shot and killed as he was being transferred to another jail on Sunday, the 24th of November. Oswald was 24 years old when he died. The President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was given a state funeral in Washington DC and laid to rest in Arlington Cemetery. Watching on television was a grieving nation, indeed a grieving world. On Friday the 22nd of November, Kennedy had arrived in Dallas with his wife, Jacqueline, who was known to an adoring public as Jackie. The first couple had climbed into an open-top car for a parade through the city. As the motorcade passed through Dealey Plaza, Kennedy was shot twice, once through the neck and once in the head. He was rushed to hospital but pronounced dead soon after arriving. John F. Kennedy was 46 years old when he died. Three men from completely different backgrounds, completely different walks of life, all fated to die violent deaths in the same city over the same weekend. The following is an hour by hour account of those historic few days, detailing how each man came to meet their end. Hello again, and welcome to episode four of the Ministry of History podcast. This is probably going to be the last episode of series one. Now remember, series one was all about murder. Today's episode is going to be slightly different from the others. It's still about murder, luckily or unluckily, however you want to look at that. 
But instead of giving a more narrative account, today we're going to be going hour by hour through some historic events. One weekend in November of 1963. I'm sure you're all familiar with the fact that John F. Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, was assassinated in 1963. You may even be aware that his alleged assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was himself shot and killed just days after Kennedy died. But are you aware of the background to the assassination? What Kennedy was doing in Dallas in the first place? What he was up to in the days and hours before his death? Are you aware that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't just kill the president that day? He also killed a normal Dallas police officer. If you weren't aware of those things already, then you will be after listening to this podcast. Today's episode starts bright and early at dawn, 7 o'clock on the morning of Friday, the 22nd of November, 1963. As we progress through the hours and the days of that fateful weekend, we come to see a little of the background of our three characters and we come to see how all three of them are murdered. Before we start, I just want to put some brief disclaimers out there. Firstly, that all of the times I'm going to list are central standard time in American time, unless I state otherwise. Secondly, although I usually give my credits and references at the end of an episode, I just want to state at the outset today that I was given the idea of a minute-by-minute account of these fateful events by the book JFK Assassination, a minute-by-minute account, written by Jonathan Mayo. Of course, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle, and check out the blog, The Ministry of History on Google, and it's one of the top results. You'll know it's the right one if you see the blue and black logo. Now then, let's take you back to the dreary, overcast morning of a day that anyone who was alive at the time would never forget. Friday, the 22nd of November, 1963. It's seven o'clock in the morning and there's only one topic of conversation for Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett and his wife, Marie, as they eat breakfast together. President John F. Kennedy is coming to Dallas today. The Tippets both voted for Kennedy in 1960 and they wish they could take their children to see him. But unfortunately, both of them are due to work that day. Tippett is a doting husband and father who has recently built a playhouse in the garden for his children. They're still asleep when he leaves the house, but he kisses them goodbye. On his way to work, he stops by to see his sister, but he's at the police station before eight o'clock. It's sure to be a busy day. Meanwhile, just a few miles down the road from Dallas, President John F. Kennedy has risen early at the Hotel Texas in Fort Worth. He showers and then puts on his back brace before dressing. Kennedy has suffered from health problems all his life, 
not least of which is a chronically bad back. So he needs his brace for gruelling days, such as the one ahead. He is due to give two speeches that morning in Fort Worth before making his way to Dallas and giving a lunchtime speech at the city's trademark. In truth, Kennedy has been nervous about his trip to the South for quite some time. In 1963, the civil rights movement was really heating up, but we have to bear in mind that the political alignment of that time is not quite what it is today. Kennedy is a Democrat, and in the 1960s, the Democrat Party is an odd coalition of Northern liberals, such as Kennedy himself, and Southern segregationists, Southern racists. After years of inaction, years of trying to avoid the subject altogether, in June of 1963, Kennedy had finally come out forcefully in support of the civil rights movement and announced that he would try and pass a civil rights act through Congress. He's comfortable that this was the right thing to do morally, but politically it's given him a real headache. Southern segregationist Democrats are furious with him and his support in the southern states is wavering. That's what this trip is all about. Kennedy is trying to strengthen his faltering position in the South ahead of his 1964 re-election campaign. For good measure, he's brought Lyndon B. Johnson on the trip. Johnson is his vice president and a proud Texan. Also on the trip is his wife, Jackie, who sensed her husband's unease and has decided to make a rare political appearance with him. The Kennedys have not always enjoyed the happiest of marriages. John is notorious for his extramarital affairs, while Jackie, for her part, has sometimes struggled to find her place in the large and intimidating Kennedy family. Quiet and reserved by nature, Jackie doesn't feel she fits in with the loud and raucous Kennedy clan. But friends and family have noticed that the couple have been closer than ever before since the tragic death of their infant son, Patrick, in the summer. Whatever their marital turbulence, John and Jackie have always been doting parents to their surviving children, Caroline and John Jr. It's John Jr.'s third birthday on Monday and the first couple have organised a party for him. The Kennedys absolutely cannot wait to get back to Washington. At the same time, in suburban Dallas, Lee Harvey Oswald rises at the friend's house where he and his family have been staying for the past few weeks. A former Marine sharpshooter who has spent some time in the Soviet Union, Oswald has recently got a job stacking shelves at the Texas School Book Depository in downtown Dallas. This morning, he's organised to grab a lift from a co-worker and as he walks to the car, he's carrying a long, thin package. He climbs into the passenger seat and his colleague asks him what it is. Curtain rods, comes the reply, in a tone that doesn't invite any further conversation. The colleague shrugs. Lee has never been much of a talker. 
At 8.15 in the morning, President Kennedy peers down from his window at the Hotel Texas to have a look at the car park where he's due to give a speech. As he surveys the crowd, he's relieved to see that they seem supportive and welcoming. Vice President Johnson is sent downstairs to warm them up while Kennedy waits for Jackie to get dressed. By 8.45, he gives up waiting and makes his way downstairs shaking hands with people in the crowd before climbing onto the back of a truck and giving his speech. Half an hour after that, at quarter past nine in the morning, he's back indoors, giving a more substantive speech to 2,000 guests who have gathered in the hotel ballroom for breakfast. The room bursts into spontaneous applause when Jackie Kennedy enters at 9.30, dressed in a pink Chanel suit. At 10.30 in the morning, Officer J.D. Tippett pulls into a diner at the start of his patrol and sits down to have a coffee with a fellow officer. Both of them are apprehensive about the day to come. President Kennedy is not a popular man in Dallas and many in the police force are worried sick that something's going to happen to him. Tippett and his buddy both agree they're glad they aren't assigned to the parade downtown. Meanwhile, President Kennedy is a happy man. A gruelling day has actually got off to a decent start. His breakfast speech at the Hotel Texas has gone down a treat and he's managed to avoid a media headache when he politely and artfully declines to put on a Stetson hat that he's been presented with at the end of the gathering. If you don't know what a Stetson hat is, just imagine your typical Texan cowboy hat and then consider that Kennedy may have had some explaining to do had he been photographed with it on. Anyway, he and Jackie retire to their room for a brief rest before they make their way to Dallas. It's while they're recuperating that Kennedy is handed a copy of that day's Dallas Morning News, which has a front page accusing him of being beholden to communists. Kennedy holds it up for Jackie to see and smiles wryly as he says... We're heading into nut country today. It's now 11 o'clock in the morning and one of Kennedy's aides receives a call from Dallas. The president is due to travel through the city in a motorcade and the driver of the presidential limousine wants to know if he's meant to put the roof on the car or not. The aide doesn't really know what to tell him of course, the president won't be best pleased if he's sitting in an open-top car in the middle of a rainstorm, but at the same time, he'll want to be able to see the crowd and make sure that the crowd can see him. In the end, the aide decides to say that the roof will stay off unless there's a rainstorm. The roof is technically see-through, but the crowd still wouldn't be able to get the best look at the president and the first lady. The glass is bulletproof after all. At 11.15 in the morning, John and Jackie Kennedy board Air Force One in Fort Worth for the short flight to Dallas. In fact, it's a very short flight, only 10 minutes, and it would probably be more sensible to just drive there. But the president's aides have decided that flying to Dallas 
arriving in Air Force One makes for a far more impressive scene. At the very same time, Lee Harvey Oswald is listening quietly as a colleague excitedly explains how the presidential motorcade is due to pass right outside the Texas School Book Depository building on Dealey Plaza in downtown Dallas. At 11.35 in the morning, Air Force One touches down at Dallas's Love Field Airport and taxis to a stop. Several journalists bundle out of the front door and moments later, Jackie and John Kennedy emerge from the back door. Kennedy surveys the crowd and quickly realises that not everyone is there to welcome him. There's a couple of Confederate flags and signs condemning his liberal policies. But a politician as gifted and as smooth as him is not so easily deterred. After shaking hands with local dignitaries at the bottom of the stairs, he and Jackie work the crowd and shake hands with as many people as they can. After the gloom and rain of earlier in the morning, the runway is now bathed in sunshine and the Kennedys look every bit as glamorous as the crowd had hoped they would. Jackie with her pink suit and flawless hair, John in a perfectly tailored grey suit with a blue shirt and navy tie. A television reporter tells his audience that he can spot the president's suntan from a mile off. Unbeknownst to anyone outside of his immediate circle, Kennedy's tan hasn't come from him standing for hours out in the sun. It's merely a side effect from all the medication he's taking for his numerous health problems. On days when they're both working, JD and Marie Tippett try to have their lunch together and that's exactly what they're doing at 10 past 12 in the afternoon. They usually spend the whole hour together, but not today. After finishing his sandwiches, JD is anxious to be back on patrol as soon as possible, just in case something happens with the president's visit. JD can't wait for the day to be over for the president to be gone and for a rare weekend at home with his family to begin. By this time, President Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy are seated in the back row of the presidential limousine with Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife, Nellie, sitting in front of them. The glorious sunshine means that the roof is off and this makes the Secret Service detail very nervous as they follow in the vice presidential limousine with Lyndon Johnson. They're even more nervous when Kennedy, out of nowhere, orders his driver to halt. He's seen a sign held by a group of children on the side of the road, asking him to stop and shake their hands. Kennedy gladly grants the children's wishes and their mothers are beside themselves with excitement. At 12.15 in the afternoon, on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository building, Lee Harvey Oswald organises some boxes so that he's hidden from view. He then opens the package he had taken to work with him. 
the package doesn't contain any curtain rods. It's now 25 past 12 on a glorious and unseasonably warm November afternoon and President Kennedy is still a very happy man. He hadn't expected such a warm welcome in one of the most conservative cities in the country. Rows and rows of people have lined the streets of Dallas to see him. Well, to see him and his wife. Kennedy is well aware that the crowds might not be quite so large if Jackie wasn't with him. And if he didn't know already, then he certainly knows now that he must get her to join him on more political trips as he gears up for the 1964 election. At 12.30 in the afternoon, the presidential motorcade turned onto Elm Street, which ran along the north end of Dealey Plaza. This was the last stretch of crowd they would see before they headed through an underpass and onto the highway to the trademark. The president is still waving to the crowd, but as the car speeds up and heads away, his thoughts turn to the speech he has to give in a few minutes' time. His thoughts are interrupted when Nellie Connolly turns to him and says, you certainly can't say that the people of Dallas haven't given you a warm welcome. No, you certainly can't, agrees Kennedy. These are the last words he ever says. Lee Harvey Oswald aims his rifle, squints and pulls the trigger. Several people hear a loud crack as if a firework has just gone off. But Clint Hill, a secret service agent assigned to protect Jackie Kennedy, knows instinctively that it was a gunshot. He leaps from the vice presidential limousine and races towards the first couple. Lee Harvey Oswald realises that his first shot has missed. He steadies himself, aims again, and fires a second bullet. John F. Kennedy suddenly grabs his throat and stares at Jackie with a confused look on his face. At the same time, John Connolly screams in pain and falls into his wife's lap. Oswald's second bullet has passed through Kennedy's throat and then through Connolly's seat and into the governor's back. The fact that Connolly has collapsed has shielded him from further shots. Kennedy, who is still grabbing frantically at his throat, is held upright by his back brace. While all of this is happening, as the crowd starts to notice that something might be wrong, Lee Harvey Oswald aims and fires for a third time. Jackie Kennedy is panicking. In front of her, Governor John Connolly is screaming, they're gonna kill us all, as his wife Nellie cradles him in her arms. To the right of her, John Kennedy has blood streaming from his throat and he's struggling to say anything. Behind her, Jackie can see Clint Hill racing towards her in the corner of her eye. Suddenly, her husband's head 
simply explodes. Bits of skull and brain fragment fly around the car and he collapses into her lap. Jackie screams and jumps up, turning round to see Clint Hill jumping onto the back of the car. She stretches her arm out, desperate to try and reach him, as the driver of the limousine, realising that something dreadful has happened, slams his foot on the accelerator and speeds towards the underpass. At 12.32 in the afternoon, J.D. Tippett is sitting in his patrol car when he hears the words he hoped he wouldn't hear. A message goes out on police radio ordering all available units to attend a major incident at Dealey Plaza. Tippett knows that the president was due to go through the plaza. His heart sinks. Meanwhile, Lee Harvey Oswald stuffs his rifle behind the boxes and leaves the building. Most people are far too distracted to notice him. But not all people. A man has spotted Oswald and noticed how calm he is as he walks away from the scenes of utter pandemonium on Dealey Plaza. He's suspicious enough to tell a nearby policeman and soon the message is out on police radio to search for a white man with a slim build and dark hair standing at a height of 5 foot 10. J.D. Tippett hears the call and scans the streets as he heads towards Dealey Plaza. At 12.40 in the afternoon, doctors in Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas have been informed that a white male suffering from a gunshot wound is on his way to A&E. They are stunned when they open the door to find Jackie Kennedy standing in front of them, her pink suit now turning crimson with blood. The doctors cut the shirt from the president's body and begin a heart massage, but really they all know that there's nothing they can do to save him. At the same time as this is all happening, Lee Harvey Oswald is sitting in a cab heading south, away from downtown Dallas. He had initially hopped onto a bus, but became impatient when the bus got caught in all the traffic amid the chaos around Dealey Plaza. So he hopped off the bus, hopped into a cab, and is now putting some distance between himself and the scene of the crime. Meanwhile, millions of Americans are sitting at home watching a daytime soap opera called As the World Turns. The programme is interrupted by a CBS news bulletin which informs the nation that in downtown Dallas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded in this shooting. The soap opera then returns to the screen and millions of Americans stare at their television sets in bewilderment, wondering if what they just saw was really true. By 12.50 in the afternoon, everyone standing around President Kennedy on the operating table is aware that he's dead. But Jackie refuses to allow him to be officially declared dead until a Catholic priest has arrived to administer the last rites. A priest doesn't appear for another 10 or 15 minutes, 
But once he does, he performs his solemn duty and John Fitzgerald Kennedy is officially declared dead just after one o'clock in the afternoon. One of his press secretaries, Malcolm Kilduff, is chosen to make the announcement public. Kilduff has to wipe away tears and compose himself before he heads out to face the world's media. At around the same time, Lee Harvey Oswald has got back to his temporary accommodation, retrieved a pistol and is now wandering aimlessly around the Oak Cliff area of suburban Dallas. The police dispatcher, meanwhile, has realised that it's pointless having every officer in Dealey Plaza. The worst has already happened and the assassin has probably fled. He orders J.D. Tippett to make his way to Oak Cliff. J.D. Tippett arrives in Oak Cliff at around quarter past one in the afternoon. His mind is whirling at a thousand miles an hour. Though there's no official news on Kennedy's condition yet, he knows the situation is grim. And even if the president pulls through, the reputation of Dallas, not least the city's police department, will be horribly stained. As Tippett cruises down 10th Street, he spots a man who instantly arouses his suspicion. He is white, slim, has dark hair, and is about five foot 10 inches tall. Tippett's suspicions are further aroused when the man spots him in his patrol car and wheels away in another direction. Lee Harvey Oswald is nervous, walking briskly away from the police car on 10th Street. He hopes the officer just ignores him, but reaches for the pistol in his jacket pocket, just in case. JD Tippett catches up with his suspect and pulls up alongside him. He winds down his passenger window and leans over to order him to stop before opening his door and stepping out of the car. Lee Harvey Oswald is panicking as he watches the policeman walk across the front of the car towards him. In an instant, his panic gets the better of him. He pulls the pistol from his jacket and fires three times. J.D. Tippett falls in a heap in front of his car. He may or may not still be alive to watch as Lee Harvey Oswald stands over him and fires a final bullet into his head. Tippett is definitely not alive after this. Lee Harvey Oswald sprints away from 10th Street just as a witness rushes to the patrol car. This witness grabs the police radio through the open passenger window and calls for urgent assistance. Outside Parkland Hospital, the crowds of journalists and members of the public notice that flags are being pulled down to half-mast. They all know what this means. 
At 1.30 in the afternoon, Malcolm Kilduff steps out before the cameras and confirms the news that President Kennedy is dead. Eight minutes later, the news reaches Walter Cronkite at the CBS news desk in New York. Cronkite is the most recognisable news anchor in the country and has spent most of the last hour updating the shocked nation with the latest reports from Dallas. At 1.38 in the afternoon Central Time, 2.38 Eastern Time, he is handed a note and has to steady himself, wiping his lip before he reads it aloud. From Dallas, Texas, the flash apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1pm Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Cronkite noticeably swallows a lump in his throat and has to stop himself from crying. This moment will become one of the most famous moments of broadcasting history. At 1.40 in the afternoon, Lee Harvey Oswald darts into a cinema without paying for a ticket. The cashier assistant, who has no idea of the earth-shattering events that have just occurred in the past hour or so, is thoroughly unimpressed with Oswald and calls the police. Upon getting a description of the man who has gone into the cinema without paying for a ticket, the police know it's their assailant. They surround and swarm the building, and by two o'clock, Oswald has been arrested after a struggle in which he sustains a black eye. Half an hour later, at 2.30 in the afternoon, Vice President Lyndon Johnson is sitting on Air Force One, realising that he's about to be sworn in as President. This is a moment he's waited for his whole life. Indeed, it's a moment that he believes was stolen from him by Kennedy in 1960. But this is certainly not how he had imagined it would arrive. Minutes later, Lyndon Baines Johnson is sworn in as the 36th President of the United States, with a dazed Jackie Kennedy standing next to him, and with John F. Kennedy's body lying in a coffin at the back of the plane. Johnson is adamant that it's only right that he is sworn in as soon as possible, for national security reasons. But Kennedy's staff are furious with Johnson for being so crass. In any case, Air Force One takes off for Washington at about 2.45 in the afternoon. By three o'clock in the afternoon, Lee Harvey Oswald has been booked at Dallas City Jail and officially charged with the murder of Officer J.D. Tippett. His guilt on that charge isn't really in doubt, there were loads of witnesses, but authorities are sure that he's also the assassin of the president. All order has broken down in the jail and the world's media are breezing around at will, shouting questions and trying to speak with Oswald. The identity of the slain policeman is not officially announced to the public, but J.D. Tippett's name is doing the rounds on local radio stations. 
These reports are heard separately by his two brothers, Don and Wayne. They call their sisters, Joyce, Edith and Christine, to see if it's true. The siblings can't figure out between them if the reports are accurate or not, and eventually Christine calls Marie, JD's wife, who then frantically calls the police station to find out if her husband has been killed. The policeman on the other end confirms that JD is dead, and a heartbroken Marie is forced to call all of her brothers and sisters-in-law with the awful news. By five o'clock in the evening central time, six o'clock eastern time, Air Force One has landed in Washington and John F. Kennedy's coffin is rather ungraciously bundled out of the back door. Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General and the slain president's younger brother, embraces Jackie as she steps out, her pink suit still covered in her husband's blood. President Johnson gives a few brief remarks to the media gathered on the runway. Meanwhile, Caroline Kennedy, John and Jackie's six-year-old daughter, is picked up by a secret service agent from a friend's house. Young Caroline is upset that her sleepover has been cancelled and wonders why the big, burly secret service man is wiping tears from his eyes as he drives. At eight o'clock that evening, central time, the wider Tippett family have gathered at JD and Marie's house when a call comes through. On the other end of the line is the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, who extends his sincerest condolences on behalf of his family and then says quietly that JD Tippett would be alive if his brother hadn't visited Dallas. Through her tears, Marie replies that both murdered men were only doing their jobs and that JD had admired the president a great deal. A few days later, Jackie Kennedy will send a picture to Marie with an engraving expressing her condolences and expressing her belief that they both must tell their children what brave men their fathers were. It's now Saturday, the 23rd of November, 1963. At 1.35 in the morning, Lee Harvey Oswald is officially charged with the murder of John F. Kennedy on top of the existing charge of the murder of J.D. Tippett. Over that same night, some of John F. Kennedy's many siblings and siblings-in-law have gathered at the White House to support Jackie and the children. His sister, Eunice Kennedy, and her husband, Sergeant Shriver, have spent the night making sure that the East Room of the White House is sufficiently decorated to receive the President's coffin. At four o'clock in the morning, Eastern Time, the coffin is brought into the East Room to lie in repose. By nine o'clock central time, that same morning, J.D. Tippett's body is lying in a slightly less glamorous location, a local funeral home 
in suburban Dallas. At midday Eastern time on Saturday the 23rd, Jackie and Robert Kennedy are taken for a viewing around Arlington Cemetery, the military cemetery just outside Washington, where the president had visited 11 days before his death to lay a wreath on Veterans Day, that's Armistice Day in Europe, the 11th of November. It's during this viewing that Jackie decides her husband shall be buried there at Arlington Cemetery. Most people had assumed that Kennedy would be buried in his native Massachusetts, but Jackie's word on the matter is final. It's now Sunday, the 24th of November, 1963. At about nine o'clock in the morning, central time, a decision is made to move Lee Harvey Oswald from the Dallas City Jail to the more secure County Jail just outside of town. He's been questioned about his role in the president's death, but he's giving nothing away. At 12.30 in the afternoon, Eastern Time, the president's body is due to be moved from the White House to the Capitol building to lie in state for another day. Just before this move happens, Jackie and Robert Kennedy request to see the body one last time, and when the coffin is opened, they both weep openly. Jackie requests a pair of scissors, and when these are brought to her, she gently cuts a few strands of her husband's hair from his body. John F. Kennedy's coffin is then closed, never to be opened again. Half an hour later, at one o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Time, the President's coffin is taken to the Capitol building in a sombre, horse-drawn procession. The only sounds that break the eerie silence are from the horses' feet and from the sobs of the thousands of people who have lined the streets of Washington. At 20 past 12 in the afternoon, Central Time, Lee Harvey Oswald is marched out of a door in the basement of the Dallas City Jail towards a waiting police van in front of a crowd of journalists and cameras Suddenly, a local nightclub owner called Jack Rubenstein, also known as Jack Ruby, steps out from the crowd with a revolver and shoots Oswald in the torso at point-blank range. Amid all the commotion, two voices can be heard. One of them belongs to a news reporter who tells his live television audience, he's been shot, he's been shot. The other voice belongs to a detective who was walking alongside Oswald and has recognised Jack Ruby. Jack, you son of a bitch! Five minutes later, the news of Oswald's shooting filters through to a small crowd who are gathered outside the city jail. The crowd enthusiastically applaud when they hear that Oswald has been shot. They hail Jack Ruby as a hero and demand that he not be arrested for the great service he has just performed for the nation.
At 10 past one in the afternoon, central time, Lee Harvey Oswald is pronounced dead in Parkland Hospital, where President Kennedy had died just over 48 hours previously. Jack Ruby is pleased when he's told that Oswald is dead. He claims that he killed Oswald because he was angry about the president's death and that he, quote, did it for Jackie. In killing Oswald, Ruby has also killed any chance of finding out if Oswald had acted alone in the president's assassination. The fact that Ruby has ties to the mafia causes rampant speculation that he was ordered to kill Oswald to cover up a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Ruby himself dies from cancer before he goes to trial and conspiracy theories about Kennedy's death remain popular to this day. It's now Monday, the 25th of November, 1963. Three men are laid to rest in America. Three men who did not know each other, who had never met each other, but whose fates were tragically intertwined. (laughs) 